church all of my life and uh, having grown up in church, maybe you're, if, if you did grow up in church like I did, maybe you're a little bit like me in that I came up believing that the long and short of what it means to be a Christian is that you're going to get forgiveness for your sins, which is going to result in essentially two things. It's going to mean that life's going to be a little tougher on earth, but it's going to be okay because you're going to get to go to heaven when you die, and that's the long and short of the gospel. That was how I felt like it was all supposed to play out. Trust Jesus, and life's going to be a little tougher because the world's going to be set against you and the devil's going to hate you, and so it's going to be hard in this life, but that's okay because you go to heaven when you die, and that's kind of the end of the story. And that was worth it because heaven's forever and life's kind of brief, and so that seemed like a fair trade-off. And I spent a good portion of my younger life thinking that was the end of the story. Thankfully, I have since discovered there's far more than that. That what Jesus wants us to experience is what he talked about in John 10.10. And I would read that and think that sounds really good. You know, where Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And that sounded so good. The problem for me was I just didn't see many Christians who were experiencing that. I pretty much felt like I saw two kinds of Christians. There were Christians who are people who profess faith in Christ that their version of life to the full pretty much meant you go to church on Sunday and live like a pagan the rest of the week, and that's life to the full. And I never really felt like that was what Jesus was referring to. And then there were the sourpusses that went to church on Sunday, and then they acted mad about it the rest of the week. You know, they just didn't have anything that looked like life to the full. What is that supposed to look like? It's supposed to look a lot like heaven on earth in many respects. Well, the passage that we're going to look at today really does get at the heart of a lot of the things that keep us from from living in and constantly experiencing that fuller life that Jesus wanted for us. Now, when you really get down to it, the things that keep us from having the life to the full that Jesus wants, they really come in three different forms and they come from three different directions. See if this doesn't line up with your experience. When you think about the things that drag you down, that keep you from being full of hope and joy and peace, wouldn't you agree that they come from these three directions? First of all, stuff comes from our past. We've got all of this regret and shame and disappointment and pain that comes purely from behind us, right? Because we've all done these things that are wrong and that we're embarrassed about and that we wouldn't want the world to know about. And we just wish that we could be free from even remembering that. We've got things that we've left undone that we feel bad about. So there's all of the shame and regret from the past. But then in the present, there's a whole other package of stuff in the form of, of pressure and stress and anxiety. Don't you feel that? And that comes packaged a lot of different ways. In, in today's time, it comes from over, overtaxed schedules and tremendous financial pressure for most of us, feeling like we're, we're just going to have to work till Jesus comes and beyond to just pay for it all. But you think about all the relationship pressures that we live with. You're single and you think you're never going to be married. You'll never find the right one. And then you find the one that you think's the right one. And you get in a relationship and you're wondering if it'd be better off to be single again. And then you, you finally do get married and you think that's going to solve all your problems. And then you wake up and find out, whoo, that was a mistake. Getting married doesn't solve all your problems. Getting married just means you've got a long time to work on them. There's a lot of pressure in the present. 
relationships, finances, health issues. Oh, and by the way, then you have some kids. And holy cow, there's another whole lifetime of pressures and worries for you, isn't it? I mean, yes, there's a lot of joy mixed in with that. But a lot of stuff that weighs on you when, when you add all this to the mix. So there's all the pressure in the present. But that's not all. From a third direction, from the future as, you, as it is, you know, you feel this sense of fear and anxiety. Of just almost dread sometimes because we don't know what's coming out there. Or we have this sense of, of the punishment or, or all the bad that could happen based on what's happened in the past or what we've done in the past. And so we live with this sense of, of fear and worry about the future. What, what if we, what if I lose my job? What if, what if my marriage doesn't work out? What if we lose the house? What if, what if? And, and so from three different directions, we've got guilt and shame and pressure and stress and worry and dread. All of that put together will suck every ounce of abundant life out of you, won't it? If you give it the opportunity to you, and it'll just leave you feeling like, I'm just ready to die right now. Just let a truck run over me. Let Jesus come back, whatever it takes. It's just too much for one person to bear. That is not the life that Jesus planned for you. And the good news is, power is available for you to live a very different kind of life. That liberates you from the guilt of the past. That gives you peace and strength with the pressure of today. And gives you a tremendous sense of hope and optimism about the future. Romans chapter 5 speaks to all three of these. I want you to listen in the first two verses to just how Paul immediately begins to address past, present, and future issues. When he begins by saying, therefore, wait a minute, before we go any further, remember... Anytime you start to read and the first word is therefore, you have to ask why for is therefore here for. When he says therefore, you've got to back up and see what he just said or this isn't going to fully make sense. So let's back up. We'll just back up one verse. Verse 25 of chapter 4, he concludes that chapter by saying, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay, now I will just remind you, Romans is the deep end of the pool when, you come, when it comes to the New Testament. If you're going to small group, did you feel a little bit like this past week that you were in the deep end of the pool? I know, Terry and Beth lead our group, and I know Wednesday night in small group, they had to keep rereading the questions because we were all kind of like a calf looking at a new gate. Like, what was that? There, there's some heavy stuff in Romans when we start talking about our justification. You, you, I want you to put your thinking caps on today. We're not going to aim low. We're going to aim high. When we talk about Jesus having died so that our sins could be forgiven and raised so that we could be justified, I realize that that doesn't probably immediately click as to the difference between those. It will in just a minute. That's very important. Just start with that. Jesus was Jesus died so our sins could be forgiven. He was raised so that we could be justified. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Not only that, we rejoice in the hope, this this hope about the future, the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Well, that's a strange thought, isn't it? We rejoice in our sufferings. 
that word sufferings there, by the way, uh, it, it, it was a word picture uh, that was descriptive of the instrument that you would use in threshing wheat. It was a, a wooden timber that would have spikes driven through it, and you would drag that weighty thing across the wheat so that it would sort of rough it up and shake out the, the chaff from the wheat. This, this weight and, and pressure that accomplished a good thing, we're going to come back to that thought in a moment. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? There's that idea of God's wrath again. You remember from two weeks ago, we talked about the wrath that God has set this system in place where in God's moral universe, sin gets ground up and Jesus has come to save us from the wrath. For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only this, not, not only is this so, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I like how the New Living Translation translates that final verse, which says, So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us the friends of God. That's good news. Now, I realize that that's a packed passage, and on a first reading it may be like, I'm not sure what all he just said there. We're going to take a few minutes and unpack that, and it'll make a lot of sense. There's a lot of hope and good news in this. If you know me very well, you know that I'm one of the worst golfers that you've ever met. That's not humility speaking. That's just the truth. I'm terrible. But I've hung around some people who really knew how to play the game enough to know this about playing golf. That if you're going to play well, a couple of the things that you've got to get right is you've got to to understand that sort of the, the three parts of a golf swing that represent the, the three different directions that we just talked about, the past, the present, and the future. If the tee is here and the hole is here, here's the three parts of the golf swing that matter. You realize that there's only one place that you can connect with the ball, and that is right here in the present. This is the only spot you're going to touch the ball. You can't do anything about it 50 feet after it has left the tee when you're going, Woo, terrible slice. Well, it's too late then to do anything about it, right? We've got, to, we've got to make good contact right here. But if you're going to make good contact here, what are the two things every good golfer knows to do? I'm lousy at both. First of all, you've got to keep your head down and your eye on the ball, right? Because this is the only place we can, we can deal with a ball is right here in the present, which is a good reminder about life. You can only live in the present. If you get caught up too much in the future or too much in the past, you won't live well in the present. Jesus is the eternal now. 
He is always operating with us in today. He wants us to stay focused on what he has for us today in the present. But you cannot live today well and you cannot play golf well unless you learn how to do a healthy, what's the next piece, golfers? Backswing. It's all about the backswing. The the backswing is representative of your past. You've got to get this right. Now, you've got to stay focused right here, but you've got to get the backswing right or you're never going to make healthy contact with the ball in the present and you're never going to have a future that looks anything like you want it to. You've got to get the backswing right. Here's how you get the backswing right. You've got to deal with your past. And more specifically, you've got to allow Jesus to put your past to rest. Paul begins Romans 5 by telling us that faith in Jesus provides forgiveness for all of our past sins. That's really good news. He says, faith in Jesus. Now that we've been put right with God through faith, all of this has been laid to rest. Now, Now, let me just go ahead and say the obvious. If you have not yet come to faith in Jesus, none of what we say today is going to apply. It's just an advertisement for what could be yours. But Paul is writing to Christians. I realize most of the people who are listening to me today in the room and online, most are Christians. And so to you, I would say, it is only through your faith in Jesus. That's not just a mental idea. We said biblical faith is giving yourself completely to someone. It is completely trusting Jesus to the point that you've given your life to him. Through faith in him, we have been forgiven and justified for everything that's happened in our past. Now, we're going to take just a minute and unpack that. Forgiven and justified. What's the difference between the two? There's actually a big difference. When you're forgiven, it means you're not going to be punished for the things that you've done. Well, that's good news. Because if I was going to receive the, forgive, the, the punishment that I deserved without forgiveness, it means I go to hell. So it's really good news that we're forgiven and we miss hell. Unfortunately, a lot of us think that is the extent of God's forgiveness. I'm just glad I don't burn in hell forever. But forgiveness goes far beyond that. It means not only do you not go to hell, it means that God doesn't pursue you for the rest of your life to try and take you to the woodshed and hurt you for the things that you've done wrong. You're forgiven. You will not be punished for what you've done once you've been forgiven. That's really good news. But it's not enough. It's not. You know why? Because the memory of what we've done feels almost as weighty as knowing that we could be punished for it. Remembering how horribly you've messed up. Those of you who were here last week, you remember we did a really awkward sort of painful exercise of closing our eyes and remembering that thing that we've done that we're most ashamed of well the problem is that we can remember it and the thought that God remembers it and the people that we've hurt remember it that feels like such a terrible weight that pulls on us from the past and it causes shame and guilt and that can become like a cloud that hovers over us all the time do you know what I'm talking about It's okay to do this if you're with me. It's terrible, isn't it? 
It's awful to, to feel this thing of knowing what you've done and feeling like th- there's no way that I could go through my life and that not come back up and be revisited. Forgiveness just means that you're not going to be punished for that. But justification goes a huge step further. Justification means the sin won't be remembered anymore. Because the word justification, the easiest way to remember, justification, means just as if I'd. You know, when you say, I've been justified, it means it's just as if I'd never sinned. Do you ever see these... uh, News shows like Dateline or whatever, and you know, they're always trying to track down who's the criminal and did they have a past record. You ever see the, the segments where like, you know, they're they're pulling out somebody's past record, but <gasps> big shocker, they pull out the paperwork and it's it's full of pages and pages that have just been covered in black ink. Everything's been redacted. There are no details. There's no incriminating evidence because somebody has sort of wiped the slate clean from their past. This is what justification will do for you. Let me put it in simple terms that that I think you could relate to. Imagine, if you will, that one day you're driving down the road here in Baldwin County and you're in a bit of a hurry and you're driving faster than you should be driving and you're trying to do two things at once and you're texting while you drive. I know none of us do that, but let's just pretend. You're texting while you're driving and you look up just a moment too late you realize that you have failed to see in, in enough time in advance that there is a teenage bicycler on the same road with you. And you hit him going full speed. And the teenager's killed. Now, you didn't mean to do it, but he's killed through your negligence. He's killed because you were driving too fast, and he's killed because you're breaking the law, texting and driving, and there's no denying it. You're guilty of killing this young man. And because you've committed a crime, charges are brought against you, and you're sweating bullets over this. You're actually going to go to court. You may go to prison for what you did in just a moment of time because you were in a hurry. And the day finally comes when a verdict is going to be rendered, and, and you're going to see you know, what's going to happen. And sure enough, when the time comes, you're declared guilty. And you realize, oh, no, I'm going to do hard prison time for this awful thing that I've done. But then, shocker of all shockers, when it's time for the judge to pass sentence on you, he says, your sentence is suspended. In essence, I'm forgiving you. I'm letting you off. You're not going to have to pay the price for what you've done here. Okay, at this point, you know what we have? We have the equivalent of forgiveness. You're not going to pay the price for the sin that you've committed. That's forgiveness. But what's still wrong in this picture? You remember what you've done. For the rest of your life, you will remember that you killed somebody. And worse still, you live in the same town with that young man's parents. You'll have to see that mom and that dad and the siblings and the friends and everybody who ever read the newspaper about your story and about the accident and about the court case. You're going to have to live the rest of your life in a place where you will carry the shame of what you've done knowing how horribly you've hurt this family. 
I mean, it almost makes you want to go to prison, doesn't it? Does, doesn't that thought make you think, I'd almost rather do the time than have to live with the shame? That's how life is. If all you got was forgiveness, but you didn't get justification, life is a dreadful thing. Friends, I, I truly believe more Christians live their lives there than any other place. They know they're not going to hell But they're so afraid that there's some punishment that's coming because somebody knows about what I've done. If nothing else, God knows what I've done. And he could never leave that unpunished. A just God couldn't just let me off for that. There's got to be something bad coming my way for what I've done. And what the scripture says is that Jesus died so that you could be forgiven. And he was raised back to life, abundant life, for your justification. How does that work? Well, it's just this simple. In reality, that court case that I just described, where you killed somebody with your driving and and your bad judgment, what God actually pulls off in that situation is, He changes the scenario So that when you place your faith in Jesus and the jury comes back with a guilty verdict, here's what the jury actually says. We find the defendant is guilty of manslaughter. And the defendant's name is Jesus. And you're doing a double take. You're going, wait a minute, no, no, I was the one that was driving. No, but God's intervened. And he said, I've rearranged this thing so that it's not you on trial anymore. It's Jesus on trial. And when it's time for the judge to pass sentence, he doesn't say sentence suspended. He says, you're getting the maximum penalty. You're going to do the time. You're going to do the time in a rotten rat hole. You're going to get the worst. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll do the time. And if that's not enough, God goes in and does what's impossible. He changes everyone's memory of what happened. He makes it so that in reality, though you were the one driving the car, you were the one that killed the kid, from now on, as far as God is concerned, Jesus was driving that car. Jesus killed that kid, and Jesus had to do the time. You see, that's what the cross did. The cross was Jesus truly taking on everything we've ever done. It was his stuff. And that's why Jesus had to die. God has one way of dealing with sin. He crushes it. He annihilates it. Jesus did the time. He paid the full price for our sin. I'm so glad he did so that I don't have to. But that's not all. He didn't just die for your sins. He was raised to life as God's demonstration of the fact. How does God deal with somebody who has actually had sin credited to them? God shows us. He raised Jesus from the dead who suddenly walks in full power. He is fully alive, walking in the abundant life that God planned. He is the Son of God, loved by the Father. And the fact that he bore our sin doesn't change that and 
he shows us now what life is like. And from that point forward, your sin is never remembered by God again. Your whole story has been redacted. All the junk has been blacked out. It was carried over and placed next to Jesus' name. You have a clean record. Wow. And you only get it one way. Through faith in Jesus. You don't get it by trying harder. You don't get it by reading your Bible or going to church. You do it by giving yourself completely to Jesus. And God changes your record. How great is that? And at that point, there's essentially only two people we have to deal with who remember our junk. And that's us And the demonic, the devil and his demons. The scripture says the devil is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. Oh, does he ever. He comes back to you and he reminds you of what you've done. And he says, God would never use you. God's going to punish you when bad things happen. It's because God remembers what you did. And I want to tell you what you say in that moment. You say, shut up in Jesus' name. That is a lie. You are the father of all lies, and I will not believe your lies. Be silent in Jesus' name. Get out of my head. Get out of my life. Get out of my home in Jesus' name. I believe the truth. Jesus died for my sins, and he was raised for my justification. When God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and him only. I reject your lies, and I embrace the truth of God. The righteousness of Jesus is mine like a robe that I wear. And it's yours. Oh, man. That's good news. That's a healthy backswing. You want to remind me of my past? You want to remind me of what I've done? Oh, I remember it all. I don't have to hide anything. But First John 1 says, I don't, I don't lie about the truth and deny my sin. But we just expose it to the light. Because in the light, we remember that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all of our sin. And we've been made new. I don't have to live with shame and guilt about anything in the past because there is nothing, nothing, nothing in the past that's negative or ugly that God's ever going to bring up or else God is a liar. Because he has declared in his word that I am justified, that my sins have been as far removed as the east is from the west. That's great news. Through faith in Jesus, we have been justified. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, a good man, on behalf of sinners, in order to lead you to God. Thanks be to God. The second thing that, that Jesus accomplishes for us is the grace of God gives us peace in our current circumstances. In dealing with all of the pressures of life, he says in verses 1 and 2, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access, that's a key word, access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. That word access was a word picture that meant two different things. It would either refer to someone who did not know the king, who someone who was close to the king, because of their friendship and intervention, would give you access directly to the king. That's the picture for us. We didn't have any right or way to get to the king, God himself. and Someone else has given us direct access. The other word picture that applied using that word would be of a ship on a stormy sea that was given access to a calm harbor. Life is the stormy sea for us. 
when Jesus, through what he did on the cross, gives us access not only to God, but to a peaceful place that we can drop anchor and be secured from the storms of life. He is saying we can have peace with God in all of our current circumstances, with all of the pressure that weighs on us. We get peace because we have access to God. Now, here's a simple thing that I want you to consider. Think for a moment about the the one or two or three issues or situations that cause you the most stress, the most anxiety, that causes you to feel the biggest weight or the biggest knots in your gut today, in this season of life. Is it a relationship? Is it your kids? Is it your career? Your finances? Your health? What is it that, that ties you up the most in the here and now? Now I'll ask you a simple question about that. How different would your perspective on that situation be? How, how different would you feel if Jesus showed up in the flesh today like he did 2,000 years ago and instead of hanging out with some guys named Peter and John and James and those guys, if he hung out with you? If all week long and all summer long he just stayed right at your side? And every time that situation that worries you so much came up, if Jesus right there in the flesh said to you, hey, don't sweat that, don't, listen, I I understand what's going on with your job, and I understand that that it's fixing to run out, and you don't have money in the bank, but I'm telling you, I've got that covered. I, I promise you, that is taken care of. I'll take care of your career. I'll take care of your financial situation. I'll take care of this relationship. I'm telling you, I have got it. How different would you feel about that? I'd feel pretty stinking different, wouldn't you? Jesus shows up in the flesh and says, I've got this. I am right here with you. I will make sure that this does not overwhelm you. We have got this in hand. It would change everything, wouldn't it? That's what Paul is pointing out. He says, because of what Christ has done, you now have access. You have access to what? You have access to the grace of God and the person of God. In the form of Jesus. Direct access. You see, humanity hadn't had that for most of history. The Old Testament, all the way up to the time of Jesus, was a reminder of this fact. The temple itself was a reminder of that fact. You remember the whole layout of the temple? It's a little building and it's kind of split in half by this incredibly thick curtain. It's actually a bunch of curtains sewn together so that it's almost like a wall of curtains that separated this little area called the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was the place that the glory of God was understood to dwell. And so... You couldn't, you couldn't get into there. One person, the high priest, one time a year got to go into the presence of God and only for a moment. I mean, you just couldn't get to God. Big, thick veil. And outside that, in the front area of the temple, only the priest whose, whose turn it was to go in could go there. And then there's a wall that separates the rest of the priests. So you know, you've got a wall and a veil separating the priests from God. And then if you're not a priest, if you're a Jewish man, there's another wall that separates you. You're in a different courtyard. Or if you're a woman, you're another wall away. You're a further courtyard. And if you're a Gentile pagan, like the rest of us would be viewed as, there's a whole other wall. So you got curtain, wall, 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 all separating you from God and a bunch of distance. And the point is just this. You're not going to get anywhere near God because God is holy and you're jacked up. All of this separation. And yet what happened in the moment, the very moment... When Jesus breathed his last 
and said, it is finished. To Telestai, paid in full. What happened in that moment? The veil of the temple was ripped. The temple was a really tall building, and it says it was ripped from top to bottom. If a man was going to rip it, they'd rip it from bottom to top. We can't reach the top. The hand of God ripped that thing apart. Declaring in that moment that Jesus, with his death has paid the price for our sins. So now, a way has been opened up. In, in a sense, every one of those walls could be knocked down, just as the curtain could be torn in two, because we now have direct access to God. It's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 10, when he says, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies by means of our good behavior. Nope. By means of what? By means of Jesus' blood. Through a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain which is his body. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, For Christ himself has brought us peace. The peace that comes only when you know that God is right there with you. That whatever you're going through, he's in it and he's committed to you. He has brought us peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Great news. We have access to God. And that means we can have peace no matter what's going on. And then the third thing, in reference to the future, the love of God gives us hope for a better future. He says in verses 3 and 5, And we are happy because of the hope that we have of sharing God's glory. And this hope will never disappoint us because God has poured out his love to fill our hearts. He gave us his love through the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. Hope and optimism about the future will help to cause all of the guilt and shame of the past and all of the pressures of the present seem to just melt into the background when we have a confident hope about what God has planned for the future. The problem for us is we get so poisoned by the negativity of what we've done in the past or about the pressures of the present that we just imagine oftentimes that it can only be worse in the future. Instead of being hopeful and optimistic about the future, we have a hope that's built around our own experience or our ability to make it better or a twisted view of what God's really up to instead of believing in the hope of what God wants to do. You know when Paul wrote uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? You remember that one? We all love the love chapter. You remember what he says at the end? And now... These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Now, you want to get to the heart of the matter, what it's all about? Those three words sum it up better than any three words that I know. Why is faith on the front end? Because you don't get access to any of this apart from faith. There's no forgiveness. There's no justification. There's no relationship with God. There's no cause for hope without faith. Hebrews says without faith, it's impossible to please God. You've got to believe in him in order to come to him. Faith is the beginning point. What's love got to do with it? Somebody ought to write a song about that. 
Love's got everything to do with it because love is, is what it is all about. You're being called through faith into a love relationship. You were designed for a love relationship with God and people. Everything is about living in a love relationship. Life isn't about what you accomplish. Life is all about what's done in relationships. The measure of your life will never be about how much money you made or what career you had or what house you built or how many boats you own. None of that will matter. It'll all burn. It will all revolve around relationships, loving relationships. And centered between these two, hope. That's the word we seem to understand the least. Life without hope will never be abundant life. But life filled with hope, it's the heart of abundant living. The hope of knowing God's in the middle of this. God's got this. God's got a plan. I can trust him with the future. It doesn't matter how difficult things are in this moment because there's a good God who loves me. And it is the love of God that gives me hope for the future because I know God is so crazy about me. I can be certain that in the future he has good things in store. And that is the Christian hope. And of course we get tangled up going, yeah, but life stinks right now. If God's so good and if the love of God is so reliable, why is my life so hard now? That's the very issue that Paul was addressing in Romans 12 when he said, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Fair question. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I know we preachers, we all love to talk about the love of Jesus, but what about the hell that's happening at your house? You feel the love of Jesus in the middle of that? It can be really easy to feel nothing but the... The hellish pain of of conflict, just all the strife and chaos. Maybe something separated me from Jesus' love because I'm not feeling real loved in the moment. And here's what he says. Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Everybody say trouble or calamity. Those ever come to your house? You ever have trouble at your house? Well, does it mean that the love of God has left you? Because there's trouble or calamity at your house, or, or persecution, or hunger, or destitution, or danger, or because you're threatened with death, does that mean that the love of God isn't there? No! Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And he goes on to say, angels and demons can't do it. Life and death can't do it. Poverty can't do it. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And nothing that happens to me is going to convince me that God loves me any less. I'm going to have victory. My bank account may look like a loser, but I've got victory in Jesus because he's my provider regardless of what region says that I have on deposit. The doctor may say, you're fat and and have congestive heart failure going on, heart disease in your family, but Jesus is my physician. I'll walk in victory because of who he is. Are you with me? This is why we have hope for the future, because of the love of God and his commitment to us as his children. The past is dealt with. There's peace in the present. There's hope for the future. But let's delve a little bit deeper into this issue of, but why do I still have all of these problems and pressures in my life if God loves me so much? Why? Why would he let chaos still enter into my life and my family? Well, that's what he deals with in verses 3 to 5. We'll say as the fourth point this, that problems and pain 
They are absolutely necessary to produce endurance, character, and hope within us. Hope is actually, of the three things that we're talking about, hope is the hardest one for us to get our hands around, isn't it? It's because it comes as the product of a process. And here's how Paul spells it out. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. That, that word flips us there is the, the pressure, the heavy timber weighing on us. And it's an odd statement, isn't it? We can rejoice in the face of those problems, pains, and trials. Another translation says, we can boast in those things. Do you just have to like smoke crack to do this? We can boast and rejoice in our problems. James said the same thing. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials because you know that the trying of your faith produces the very same word he's going to say here. For we know that they help us to develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment. Very simple progression. Really important principle to understand. You have to have trials. You have to have this timber with the spikes in it being raked over your life, separating the wheat and the chaff. There's junk that's got to be gotten rid of in our lives. You can't hope to develop endurance without pressure, pain, and trials. Please stay with me on this because this is a huge principle at two different levels that we've got to get today. You've got to learn endurance to develop strength of character. And a person with a strong character is going to see hope emerge from that. Here's the, the compressed version of that. You'll never learn to be a person filled with optimism and hope until you have faced many trials, problems, and pains and have pressed through them and persevered. You can't do it. You can't become a person with a solid hope and a strong character unless you have faced adversity, trials, and pain. It's an absolute necessity. Now, I want to point out that, remember, Paul didn't write in English. And there are some words that just don't translate all that easily. And the word that comes out in most of our translations as endurance or perseverance there is no word in the English language that actually translates that word very well. We, we're coming as close as we can with endurance and perseverance. But the word actually means to, to face trials, difficulty, adversity with a, a spirit that says, we're going to overcome, we're going to conquer this, we're not going to be beaten by this. It is, it's that spirit that says, bring it on. We are not going to be defeated. Endurance in English just kind of sounds like you might be just sort of going, well, bless God, I made it through. I hope Jesus comes back soon because it's been rough. This word isn't that spirit. The, the spirit that we're talking about here, this is the kind of spirit that Beethoven had. You remember the great musician and composer. And when he was told that he was, was possibly about to go deaf, and I mean, that's like death to a musician. And a composer. It'd be like telling a great pianist, you're fixing to lose all your fingers. I mean, it's just like, how do I go on? And his response to that is, I will take life by the throat. I will not let this overcome me. It's not going to stop me. The image that comes to mind when I read this passage and understand the word that Paul is using here, 
I always loved the Rocky movies. Weren't those great? I mean, you knew how they were going to end. It didn't matter. They were just great. I remember the first one when I was in fifth grade. I went home and started drinking raw eggs in the morning. That didn't last for long, but, you know. Rocky did it, so I was going to try it. I'm glad I gave that up quickly. You can look at me and tell I didn't stay very long with the Rocky thing. But I loved the movies. What I loved about the Rocky movies was you could, you could put Rocky in the ring with anybody. It didn't matter. And you knew how the fight was going to go. Rocky never went in the ring and just whipped anybody, did he? You, you always knew. It was going to go a lot of rounds, and what's going to happen? Man, Rocky's going to take a pounding. He's going to get knocked down several times. But the thing about Rocky was, he had a granite jaw. And he'd, just, he'd get to the point where you're just like, there's no way he's going to get up again. And his manager would be saying, stay down, Rock. Don't get up, man. Just stay down. But Rocky's not going to stay down. He's going to get back up. And he's going to finally be like, where he's like, come on. Is that the best you got? Give it to me again. You can't hurt me. Hit me again. Because it's like, oh, man. He's in his game. He's in the 10th round. He's now taking it back to him. He's taken the best shots you can give to him. And now he's dishing it out. And you know when it's all said and done, he's going to win. That's the word that Paul is using there. When he says endurance, he's talking about rocky endurance. He's talking about a granite jaw. He's talking about living where you say, is that the best you've got, devil? I've got a jaw made of Jesus granite. Bring it on. The Spirit of Jesus lives in me. You, you may knock me down. You won't keep me down. Because Jesus is in me, I'll keep getting up. The Scripture says a righteous man falls seven times and he gets up every one of them. That's the Word. That's what Jesus is talking about through Paul. You can't learn that when life is easy. Only one way to learn it. Life's got to get hard. A heavy timber has got to be pressing down on you. Raking across your life. Shaking out the chaff so the wind can blow it away. We've all got some chaff that needs to blow away. Amen? It can't happen without some pain, some pressure, and some difficulty. That's why Paul says, hey, we can rejoice in that. We can boast in that. Am I under financial pressure? It's all right. God needs me to be under financial pressure if I am. He's going to use that in my life. Is my boyfriend, my husband, my wife giving me fits? Am I giving them fits? Are we feeling like, how are we going to make this thing work? It's all right. That pressure God is using in my life, in your life. Problems with career, problems with kids. We're like, oh God, why don't you just make my kids behave? Why don't you make life be smooth with them? Instead of whining about it, we can say, praise God. Even that difficulty Jesus is redeeming, He is teaching me to be a spiritual Rocky. A spirit that says, I will persevere. And there's a strong character that's emerging. The word that He used there is the same word that gets translated as sterling. It's a word used to describe precious metal. All the impurities are going to be burned out. You're going to have something just beautiful and pure that remains. And out of that, a life of hope will emerge. You don't get Christian hope without living through some real adversity. All right, now I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second. We're almost done. This is hugely important. I'm not saying this to be critical, but it's going to sound critical. We have an epidemic problem in America today, and it was caused by my generation. And I'm just going to claim those of us in our 30s, 40s, and 50s as my generation. As parents, 
we adopted a mindset that essentially said we just want life to be better for our kids than it was for us. Right? I mean, everybody bought into that, didn't we? Every one of us signed on for that. We just want life to be, even though a lot of us had good lives, we want it to be even better for our kids than it was for us. And in the name of better for our kids than it was for us, you know what we've done? We have gone to ridiculous, unbiblical lengths to remove all pressures from our kids' lives. All pain, all hardship and adversity that we can possibly take off of them, we have taken off of them. You know what we've done? We've raised a generation in a bubble. A generation of of kids, many of whom are now teens and young adults, who have lived in such an unrealistic bubble where mom and dad jumped in to rescue and protect at every turn. Because we never wanted anybody to be unfair or unkind or unjust to our little Johnny, our little Sally. So we'll jump in. Mean old public school teacher being mean to my child. I'll come to that school and we will have a teacher-parent conference that they won't forget, right? Don't you hurt my child's feelings. Don't you be unjust. Friends, the world is unjust. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. You better teach your kids how to live in the world, not in your little bubble. Because when they grow up, they don't get to live in your bubble anymore. But oh, guess what? They come running back because they want the bubble back. They do. It's like you find me, ten young people in their 20s that hadn't tried to run back to the mama and daddy bubble. It's like, mom and dad, we don't understand. The world doesn't want to pay us $100,000 with a high school diploma. What is wrong? The world isn't offering me a new car and a big house and an SUV on the side and a place at the beach. And my boss was mean to me, so I quit my job. Can I come live with you? (laughs) Do you know whose fault that is? It's our fault. The Scripture says it takes trials and adversity to learn perseverance. Mamas and daddies... We are working against the cause. It is time that we own it. It is a good thing for our children to have to face adversity. It is a good thing for our children to have to be at times cheated and done wrong and face sometimes injustice and learn how to stand strong in the face of adversity because they will never learn strength of character or hope if they don't endure trials. And it's time for us to repent and say, God, we've tried to do what even you aren't willing to do. And that is shield our children from what the world brings on them. Doesn't mean we turn our kids loose to be raped and pillaged, you know, at three in the morning on Friday night. But it does mean that we stop rescuing our kids and putting them in a bubble where it's like, well, I don't ever want to make them have to work or be stretched thin. I want to tell you the, the strongest young people who are emerging are the ones who have been pressed into service. Who have been called on to do hard stuff. And, and at some level we all get this. Because it's like when the bubble thing doesn't work out and kids act out the worst, what do we want to do? We want to send them to the military to go to basic training. Because at some level we get it. They need some adversity to teach them something. Well, guess what? They all need it. Just like we need it. It doesn't mean that God hates us. 
God loves us and He's bringing into our lives what we need in order to learn perseverance and character. And then the final piece that he says, and we're done, is that the death of Jesus is the ultimate proof of God's love for us. It's important that he throws that in because, let's just be honest, we can all sit here on Sunday morning and go, yeah, that's right, I want to be a spiritual Rocky, I want to to persevere. But here's the real thing. If it was hellish at your house when you left to come to church this morning, there's probably a pretty good dose of hell waiting either this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow or later this week. And it's not going to feel like rah-rah in that moment. It's going to feel like, I don't know what the preacher thought he was talking about. It didn't reach home to my house. And it's going to be really easy for what Jesus said is the birds coming in to steal the seed. And he said, that's the devil taking away the word of God that's been planted in your life, the truth. It's really easy for the devil to steal the truth that we're talking about today. When we go home and we start feeling like, yeah, like God loves me and cares about me, it feels like misery. Living in this situation, dealing with these kids, dealing with this spouse, dealing with this job, these finances. And so Paul concludes this thought by saying, in case you're questioning whether or not God really is committed to you and loves you, You remember this, that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And this is maybe the best word in it all. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us the friends of God. You didn't come in this world a friend of God. You came in on the wrong side of the line, just like me. Paul said you came in as enemies of God. And while you were still his enemies, he sent his son to pay the price and die in your place. And through that and your faith in Jesus, Jesus has now made you the friends of God. The sons and daughters of God. I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know what got you there. But I do know this. There is a loving God who wants to give you everything that you need. He wants you to have peace in your current circumstances and freedom from all the guilt and shame of the past. And a confident hope and optimism about the future that's not pie in the sky. It's rooted in the fact that God loves you. He is your father and your friend. I can hardly get my mind around that. That God would call me, count me as his friend. That's how he loves you. Would you join me as we go to him together in prayer? God, your grace lavished on us is so much better than we deserve or hope for. Please today... Would you minister forgiveness and release from sins and failures in the past? Whether you're here in the room or watching, listening online, if today that's the weight that's hanging over you, that you can't get free from the past, Paul calls us just to enter in by faith to that. Would you just say, oh God, help me today to believe you that my past sins are forgiven And that the slate is really clean and that I'm justified. 
help me to not rehearse the past again and again, but to rest in your forgiveness and love. If today you're feeling just the weight of stress and pressure on you today, we just ask God today to carry that burden. Peter says that we can cast all of those burdens on him because he cares for us. Would you ask him to replace those burdens with a sense of joy and peace in today? Whatever it is. And if your thoughts of the future just feel so dark and gloomy, would you ask God for a gift today to birth in you a hope that's rooted in His love for you and His commitment to you? And would you commit today to choose to believe the truth that God loves you, that He has a plan for you that involves hope and a future? God, I thank you that your provision is so complete. Would you lavish good gifts on your people here today? We need your help. It's one thing to accept this in our heads. We need your grace for that to drip from our heads down to our hearts, to truly believe and rest in your forgiveness, our justification, your provision for today, the hope you have for tomorrow. By faith, we receive these things in Jesus' name. Amen.